You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Alex Thier, I'm the executive director here, um, and it is an enormous pleasure uh, to have all of you here tonight, um, and particularly to have our uh, keynote speaker, uh, Kate Osimore, who I'm going to introduce briefly before her speech. Uh, Kate is right now uh, the Shadow Secretary of State for International Development, and she is here tonight for something very special, uh, to deliver a new vision uh, and set of policies uh, for labor in terms of their vision for what international development should mean going forward. Uh, Kate has a fascinating background, and I'm not going to dwell on it too much, uh, but I did notice two things that really stood out to me that I think are important, um, is that she comes from a life of service. Um, She started off uh, working on the big issue Um, And I think it's always critical to remember that issues of homelessness uh, and poverty are things that affect us here at home as well as abroad. Um, And then she had a career in uh, the venerable British institution of the NHS. Um, So she has been close to the ground working on problems for real people, um, which I suppose is what led her uh, to be elected as a labor and conservative uh, party. Oh, my God. Cooperative. (laughs) I said that. Scratch that. Let's start again. Uh, I was stumbling over cooperative in the other room. A a Labor and Cooperative Party MP uh, for Edmonton in 2015 general election. Uh, And then in June of 2016, Kate was appointed as uh, the Shadow Secretary of State for International Development. Um, We hope that all of you here will have a chance to participate. We also have a lot of people participating online. Uh, If you want to reach out with a question or a comment uh, or your favorite picture or your favorite uh, introductory gaffe, then I suggest uh, that you use uh, the hashtag ODIOSIMORE, which is up on the screen uh, there. Uh, So without further ado, uh, I welcome Kate to the podium. Thank you very much for being with us tonight. Thank you, colleagues, for that warm welcome, and Alex for that kind introduction. (laughs) And thank you to the Overseas Development Institute for your kind invitation to speak here today. The ODI has an incredible history of making space for critical thought on international development, and I'm honoured to be part of that. I want to speak to you today on the challenges facing the world and what the Labour Party will do in government to address them. Over the weekend, I visited two of the Caribbean countries worst affected by hurricanes Irma and Maria. It's only fair to mention that the British Virgin Islands have already been visited by Britain's top diplomat and statesman. The person you can trust when the going gets tough. That's right, Boris Johnson. (laughs) as if one hurricane wasn't enough. (laughs) But look, it's no laughing matter. It was an honour to visit two independent countries where the recovery risk 
being forgotten. On the 5th of September, Barbuda received a direct hit from Hurricane Irma. 95% of buildings damaged, electricity, water and infrastructure knocked out. All 2,000 people have been evacuated. An estimated $250 million of damage. For the first time in 300 years, the islands left uninhabited. It takes over an hour to get there by a small coast guard boat from Antigua through very, very choppy water. The first thing that strikes you is how empty and eerie the island feels, how few people have returned. Two of those who have returned is Jacinta, a local resident, and a policeman called the Colonel, <laughs> and they offered to show us around. Everywhere is visibly damaged. Homes with no walls, living rooms left open to the elements, furniture still there, like some sort of doll's house. The island's only hospital, called Hannah Thomas, is without a roof and is unusable. Medicines and x-ray machines are thrown around everywhere. I went on to Rosu, the capital of Dominica, the proudly independent country of 72,000 people was hit hard by Hurricane Maria 13 days later. Even as they were preparing to send assistance to Barbuda in solidarity. A month on and the picture is very bleak. A full humanitarian operation is in swing. The World Food Programme and Red Cross are trying to help cover basic needs and survive for people to survive for the next few months. Barbuda was able to turn to its sister island Antigua in its hour of need, but Dominica is one of the few countries in living memory to be devastated from end to end. Unlike Puerto Rico or Guadalupe or the British overseas territories, no one for them to turn to, to give them unconditional help and protection. Dominica was a beautiful island of jungles and waterfalls and volcanic lakes, a paradise to the thousands of eco-tourists that bring income to the island every year. A place that Dominica's Prime Minister, Roosevelt Skirit, called Eden. Then Maria hit. 90% of buildings damaged, electricity out, water affected. Trees stripped of their leaves by the high winds, those green jungles turned to brown mud, an exodus of thousands of people to other islands. Schools still closed, children still missing out on education, and no prospect of tourism income for many months. But Dominicans will rebuild, and better than before. There is a determination and a solidarity and a pride that no disaster can destroy. At a food distribution centre, I spoke to an eloquent young girl called Myas, and she was just 10 years old. Her whole future is ahead of her. And she told me she wanted nothing more than for Dominica to get back on its feet. It would be easy to say that would happen in Barbuda and Dominica. And it would be easy to say that what has happened to them is something which 
it's not important, but it is very, very important. It looked like a disaster film which had been brought to life, which is fact, no fiction. It may not be in our living rooms, but it is for real, and it is happening now. The future we feared and talked of is here. More frequent extreme climate disasters, whole islands evacuated and torn apart. Tropical storms all summer. Not just Irma and Maria, but Jose and Harvey flooding across South Asia, affecting the lives of 40 million people. Rising waters that continue to shrink islands like Kiribati in the Pacific. And that means they will soon be gone. In Dominica, I met a humanitarian worker with the Red Cross. He told me, and I quote, I don't do politics, but right now it feels like I'm working in a growth industry. And standing in the UN General Assembly days after Dominica was hit, Prime Minister Skirit told world leaders, the stars have fallen, Eden is broken. He told them 72,000 Dominicans lie on the front line in a war they did not choose, with extensive casualties from a war they did not start. Together, all 14 Caribbean community countries produce less than 0.1% of global emissions. Prime Minister of Antigua and Barbuda, Caston Brown, who I met on Friday, has pointed out the painfully obvious unfairness, injustice and inequality of the hurricanes and that small island states are the least of the polluters but the largest of the casualties. Dominica wants to rebuild as the world's first climate resilient nation and Barbuda wants to rebuild as entirely green, organic and resilient. But they are finding the rules of the game work against them. A dismal response from the aid donors, including the UK, even when eligible for official development assistance. Aid rules that don't recognise the vulnerability of small island states. International recovery loans that come, from, come with extortionate interest rates. Trade terms that continue to exploit their countries. Historic debts that won't be written off, meaning that the pressure to open up the island to predatory investors, the only source of money for the recovery, is greater than ever before. Climate change is a matter of social justice, and acting on the symptoms now is part of the answer. After many years, the world has the Paris Climate Agreement. We have the Green Climate Fund set up for exactly this kind of climate mitigation and recovery. At next week's 23rd conference of parties in Bonn, the UK must be unequivocal and protect and deliver on that hard-won world agreement. No more appeasing climate deniers, whether they are Donald Trump in the White House or Nigel Lawson in the House of Lords. And no more hand-holding, please. But this is much more about a climate policy. 
It is also about the fundamental challenge of growing inequality in our world. Inequality between countries, but, but also within countries. Oxfam say that eight men now own as much wealth as the bottom 3.6 billion people. And it's not just them. Even the IMF said earlier this month that increased taxes will not reduce growth. The IMF has come to champion the idea of reducing inequality in recent years. They recognise that inequality has increased within a large number of countries in recent years and is preventing stability and inclusive growth. On this, the IMF and the Labour Party agree. It is truly a broad church. <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn said at our party conference, and I will say it again, we are the political mainstream now. The truth is that in today's world, the triple challenges of climate change, inequality and enduring poverty cannot be treated in isolation. Let me be absolutely clear. The root cause of our crisis today is our global economic system. Over several decades, it has made a few people very rich, but in the process, it has brought the planet and many in the planet to their knees. Finally, here in the UK and in places all around the world, that bubble is bursting. The myth that says wealth will trickle down is disintegrating before our very eyes. When people around the world have, have been told that it's just a matter of time until the so-called left behind catch up, they are no longer buying it. Unless we make a serious attempt to tackle the root causes of inequality, climate change and poverty, our international development policy is doomed to fail. It is time to stop using UK aid only as a sticking plaster on the worst sores of the global economic system. It is time we leverage the UK development budget to stop those sores in the first place. There can sometimes seem to be a consensus in the UK between the Conservatives and Labour on the basic principle of helping others and on the UK's pledge to spend 0.7 of national income on development. But the truth is that the choice is stark. It always has been. Down one path, the Conservatives will tell you that the world's economy is fundamentally fair and it is working. That more free trade, more entrepreneurship, more neoliberalism and less regulation means we can all become wealthy. But the wealth, that the wealth will trickle down. They will search for the successes that prop up that narrative and will tell you that extreme poverty is falling. They will not tell you, for example, that the threshold has been reduced mul multiple times in real terms. Or that when China lifted hundreds of millions out of poverty under the Millennium Development Goals, it did so without following the classic neoliberal prescription. Or that if you apply an ethical poverty line of just $5 a day, 
The number of people in poverty is more than four billion. They will tell you that aid is our gift to the world and that the rich should be applauded for their generosity. They will not tell you about the overall financial flows where wealth continues to leave developing countries or how aid is a drop in the ocean compared to the importance of tax yields, of national debt, of remittance, of foreign direct investment, of the billions of wealth extracted every year. The other path is Labour, the party of international development. Back in 1964, the Labour government, led by Harold Wilson, set up a Ministry of Overseas Development, the first time in this country where we had a standalone department for aid. <coughs> in the 1970s, when Howard Heath's Conservatives came to power, this was merged into the Foreign Office. And when Labour was back in government in 1997, we again separated it out from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office this time as the Department for International Development. That decision led to Britain being internationally recognised as a world leader in development. And it led to millions of lives saved, millions of girls in school, hundreds of millions of pounds of developing country debt wiped out. And a world-class department that is the very best in the world at what it does. And it was Labour that laid the groundwork for the new consensus on the 0.7, which I am proud endures today, regardless of party. But Labour has always believed in social justice, in getting to the root of the problem, in tackling structural issues like national debt, as we did in the 2000s, in social spending on health and education systems, in finding the policy solutions that make the world fairer and that put people before profit. But the Department for International Development is now 20 years old, and a lot has changed since then. The financial crisis hit, the bubble of neoliberalism has burst, inequality has worsened. Whether in the Arab Springs, or in Brexit and Trump, or in countless movements across the global south, People are making their own diagnosis and realising that the system doesn't work for them. It works against them. In International 2, International Development 2, since 1997, it has become clear that poverty, eradication, the current focus of DFID and the International Development Act is not enough. For the first time, the recently agreed Sustainable Development Goals give equal weighting to people and planet alongside prosperity. And I'm proud of them, and I will fight to make sure the world achieves the targets. It is the first time we have a global plan of action like this. The global goals are a promise to the world and future generations and world leaders must keep to them. It has always been the Labour Party on entering government that takes bold strides forward on global justice, like we did in 1964 and we did in 1997. And now, once again, it's time for Labour, when we enter government, to revolutionise the UK's approach to international development. We will once again raise the bar. So let me tell you a little 
about what I believe that revolution must look like. The singular mission of the next Labour-led Department of International Development will be to build a world that is for the many, not the few. But before a revolution, we must be clear where we need an evolution. We must, of course, protect our pledge to spend 0.7, as Labour has committed to doing so in its manifesto. No more dancing to the tune of Paul Dacre and the right-wing aid sceptics. We must also throw our weight behind the Sustainable Development Goals, particularly those where enough is not being done and where the UK can add value. There are too big and way too important for us to fail. The Sustainable Development Goals must begin at home. The next Labour government will take achieving and reporting on them here in the UK seriously. And we must recommit and double our efforts to strengthen the global rules-based system. Already, global governance and the world's ability to tackle its biggest problems is on the ropes. So no more unilateral threats to withhold United Nations funding without agreeing a multilateral approach first with other member states. No more jingoistic threats from Theresa May, Priti Patel and Boris Johnson to take back control of our aid budget from the OECD. No more scapegoating of global institutions for the sake of scoring political points at home. Instead, sensible, calm leadership and cooperation. But we must do more than just defend the status quo. Our manifesto committed to, and I quote, develop a targeted development agenda based on the principles of redistribution, social justice, women's rights and poverty reduction. Jeremy Corbyn and I have been clear in the build-up to the June election that our international development policy will work for the many not the few. That central aspiration, a world for the many, not the few, must be what drives the UK international development policy. This is how we can be a beacon of hope for the world. So it is no longer enough simply to fixate on protecting 0.7%. Of course, we know why we did. It was under assault from the extreme right making sure we spend the development budget effectively and transparently is absolutely right. The Tories' confused aid strategy says more on how they will spend the money and that it will be in the British national interest, but they do not articulate clear, compelling, transformative objectives. The failure to do so damages the British public's belief and trust in international development. We must not put the mechanics of how we spend the aid budget before the aspiration of why we spend it any longer. After seven years of Tory government, it is time we put the central moral case and purpose back at the heart of international development. That means we will make sure that the Department for International Development has clear objectives of how it will transform the world. Not just numbers and targets or results, important though they are, but a clear strategy 
and a set of measurable objectives that tells the British taxpayers how their contributions will help build new health services in other countries, transform education systems, get tax cooperation agreements signed, prevent conflicts that are at tipping point, reduce inequality gaps and challenge gender inequality. If we're going to help build a world for the many, not the few, then our central moral argument cannot be about just charity. In today's world, the central driving purpose of our international development policy must be first and foremost about fairness. We must challenge inequality wherever it exists. Inequality between genders, inequality of wealth and of opportunity, inequality between the few who are ahead and the many who are left behind. The kind of global inequality and unfairness that leaves the recovery of Barbuda and Dominica in jeopardy. So I'm delighted to announce today that a Labour government will explicitly task the Department for International Development for the very first time with a twin purpose of not only eradicating poverty, but also reducing global inequality. In practice, that means that everything DFID does will be looked at through a lens of how it contributes to reducing inequality and that outcomes will also be measured on that basis. This inequality focus will build on the important principle within sustainable development goals to leave no one behind. As well as DFID existing world-class work to break down data to make sure the most marginalised are benefiting from development, it will also mean that DFID will specifically champion global efforts to make progress against goal 10 of the SDGs, to reduce inequality within and among countries. That will include convening like-minded champion governments from around the world at a major summit to accelerate progress on reducing inequality. We will hold that within the first nine months of being in government. And I have already spoken at some length about how our international development policy cannot hope to tackle the root causes of inequality, climate change and poverty if we rely on aid alone. Take tax, for example. Tax avoidance costs developing countries huge amounts of money. It is estimated that more than 100 billion US dollars are lost each year from corporate tax avoidance by developing countries. In Africa alone, the estimated 35 billion US dollars lost each year exceeds the 30 billion US dollars that enters the continent through aid. The UK, of course, has its own particular obligations, given our relationship with a vast network of overseas tax havens. DFID also does important work on strengthening the capacity of tax authorities and boosting tax yields in developing countries. Labour has been clear that we will step up that work with other countries to, to develop progressive 
tax systems. We have also committed to leading the way on tax cooperation and strengthening existing international bodies so that we can secure a breakthrough in creating fairer global rules to govern taxation across borders. And I am calling on the government ahead of the November budget to use the powers granted in the 2016 Finance Bill and insist on multinationals doing public country by country reporting of their tax affairs. That work is hugely complex. It requires diplomacy. The outcomes are uncertain. It is sometimes outside the domain of the Department for International Development. But when so many billions of pounds are at stake, that should be spent on hospitals and schools in the world's poorest countries, it is all the more important for it. And you could apply the same argument the global rules have when it, co when it governs debt or trade or peace and conflict. But let me be clear, a Labour government will not shirk the responsibility of tackling structural factors head-on in government. We will think ambitiously, we will act boldly and we will do the hard work of winning international support and changing the rules of the global game to make our economic system fairer. We will do whatever we need to do to level the playing field. To do that, we need at least three things. First of all, a strong cross-government approach. Not like the Tories who want to use, <laughs> to use every greater portion of the aid budget to plug budget gaps of departments that cannot spend aid effectively or transparently. But a whole of a government approach of international development policy with other government departments. The Treasury, Trade and Investment, Foreign Office, Ministry of Defence, actively involved in formulating and delivering on our ambition to build a world for the many, not the few. An empowered and properly staffed department coordinating policy and action across the whole of Whitehall in order to get to grips with the biggest problems facing this planet. Secondly, we cannot hope to make breakthroughs on social justice through top-down government alone. We need civil society. Whenever social change happens, whether in the struggle against apartheid, the cancellation of developing countries' debt in the 2000s, or in the hundreds of struggles fought every day in the global south, it is invariably because a committed group of citizens stand up for what is right and what is fair. The UK government must do much more to protect and promote civil society and its ability to operate, not only here in the UK, but also directly in the global south. Under the Tories, advocacy and campaigning organisations have been targeted and undermined. The Lobbying Act has delivered a chilling effect across the sector. Strategic funding mechanisms like the Programme Partnership Arrangements and the Civil Society Challenge Fund have been slashed, despite evidence that they work. And NGOs forced to apply for rigid 
and limited funds that don't do justice to their fantastic work. A Labour government will celebrate civil society not only for its service delivery but also for its advocacy and campaigning. We have committed to repealing the Lobbying Act. Our human rights based foreign policy means we will speak out wherever it is helpful to do so when civil society space is squeezed. I'm also delighted to announce today that Labour in government will take immediate steps to increase overall funding to civil society. Not only international NGOs, but also to civil society organisations that play such a crucial role in driving change in the global south. We will immediately relaunch a strategic funding mechanism for civil society within the first nine months of entering office. We will also establish a significant new social justice fund designed to support civil society to challenge the root causes of poverty, inequality and climate change within countries. Thirdly and finally, if we are to tackle them, we must be ready to hit the ground running in government to put more detail to our vision. That is why I am pleased to also announce and launch today a new Labour International Development Task Force. Experts and activists who will advise me acting in their individual capacity. Over the coming six months, they will help put flesh on the bones of our programme for government. Before the end of 2017, I want to hear ideas and evidence from the sector and from within the Labour Party. And in spring next year, we will publish a paper setting out in more detail our programme for government. That is the work that lies ahead for us all. To get beyond British aid as a sticking plaster, as a last attempt to hold back the waves unleashed by our global economic system, and instead to use it to drive serious systematic change. I want to be able to look at Myas, the 10-year-old girl that I met in Dominica, in the eye and tell her that we are here for her, we see her, we're on her side, and that Dominica will recover. That pollution unleashed on the other side of the world and unfair rules on debt, trade and aid will not hold her back from her bright future. That the UK and the world stand for global justice and that we are doing all we can to build a world for the many, not just the few. And I look forward to working with you all. And I thank you for being here today. So obviously, um, inequality uh, and its importance in everything international and domestic is a fundamental part of your speech and this new vision that you've laid out. Um, I actually want to start with a personal question. Um, as I said in my introduction, you know, you have spent time uh, working on the ground uh, in your communities, and now you're looking at how this issue plays out, not only domestically, but around the world. I, th I think it'd be really valuable for everybody to hear a little bit about sort of what, what brought you to this point in your thinking about inequality. <laughs> not easy, <laughs> where do I start? Well, that's a really good question, um, Alex, because I think it's important for people to know 
a little bit about Kate and you know how did she get to this point and why is she so passionate about inequality because that is something which I see every day. I think it's important for most people to understand that I grew up in a very political household. So my mum came here from Nigeria and she taught me from a very young age that you have to stand up for what you believe in. And she came here as a woman in her sort of 20s. She had four children and she battled in, you know, majority of her life, every part of her life, every turn that she took, she was challenged. And I saw that and I just, I felt that that was normal, that you always had to fight for things. And so everywhere I go, wherever I work, I join groups, which mean that I have to speak up for others because I can see that it's unfair. And I think if I'm honest, I've always had to battle for everything that I've got. So that's one of the reasons that I am the way I am. But I, I really think that the more we ignore inequality, especially in country, the worse it's going to get. Before I became an MP, I had my first big job and I was a manager of a practice, a surgery, GP surgery. And that was the first time that I'd actually been paid enough money to look after myself and look after my family. Before that, I'd always had part-time jobs or had jobs where I wasn't paid enough. So I had to rely on the state to top up my salary and to pay for my rent. And so I've always struggled, but I knew that I was going to be somewhere. So that's why I talk the way I do, because just because someone is in a position that they're in at that time, it doesn't mean that they're not going to get somewhere else. And we have to always remember that. And we mustn't leave people behind. So that's why I'm like this. <laughs> and, and let me, you know, that you outlined in your speech some of the things that you, you think that this means. Um, you know, tackling inequality um, is about a lot of tough politics, right? It's about exclusion and discrimination. Um, I mean, can you talk a little bit about what you think that that would mean for UK aid and DFID when you're, you're taking on not just the fact that people are poor and, and need a hand up, but really some of the deep systemic issues that prevent us from addressing inequality? Well, I think one of the biggest issues that we have about addressing it is because we don't accept that it is impossible to expect someone to live off, you know, $2 a day or $1 a day. None of us can do that. So we, we, we give people this false reality and we work around that and expect to be able to deliver aid where we're bringing people up and they're able to be sufficient without relying on the aid that comes in. Many countries that get aid, that's the only money that comes in because nobody is living off enough money to generate enough money to pay taxes, to be able to bring their whole family up and be not, not be reliant on aid. So I think one of the first things that we must challenge and break down is talk about this myth that we expect people to be able to live off $1 a day, $2 a day, $10 a day. For us to even get on the tube in the UK, I mean, for, you know, one journey is about four quid or something. I mean, it's ridiculous that we do that and then we use that as our marker and we're never, ever going to be able to achieve what the aid goal is, is that we're supposed to be able to reduce poverty. We will never be able to do that. And then we're in this vicious cycle and we're not allowing people to be able to stand up for themselves without reliant on aid. And then we have really bad relationships with governments where we're not expecting the government to support their own 
because that's the role of the government. The government should be there as a state to support the most vulnerable, and they're not doing that. So we have these very, very dysfunctional relationships, and a lot of it stems from the first relationship that the UK or the West had with Africa and had with Asia, where it was that we went and we took. We've always taken, and we've never looked at that relationship, and we're still doing that. We're still taking from people, and we're not allowing people to stand up on their own. And I think that's one of the first challenges. And I think that in itself, once we do that, then we can start looking at the challenges. And that's where my vision of looking at inequality will take place. Because if we are honest with ourselves and say, look, someone needs at least £50 a day, as an example, to live. And if they're not getting that, then those challenges will still be there. And that's why we're going around in circles. And whilst we're doing that, we've got conflicts, We've got disagreements, we've got borders which are not genuine borders, so they're porous and people are moving in and out. And those same people who are supposedly living off one dollar a day are the ones on the front line, and they're the ones suffering the most. And then we don't take responsibility for that, or we're complicit in those wars. And I, I speak you know, passionately about this because we need to take some responsibility of why the world looks the way it does. And aid is used as another arm to suppress people, and we mustn't use it in that way. We must use it to empower people and make sure people are able to stand on their own two feet and be independent and be proud, because these people are proud, mm. you know. So I think your description of your recent trip was, was very powerful um, and, and moving, and obviously you linked it to the broader issues of, of climate change, which pose enormous challenges. Um, you, I understand you were also recently in Iraq, yes. um, and you've talked about conflict, and, and you've talked about it, I think this idea is very interesting, about the incredible number of people who are below an ethical poverty line. Um, so one of the questions that, that uh, ministers get to, have to deal with every day, is making hard choices. Um, and I wonder if you could articulate a little bit about how you would make decisions about where, where is the best way, given the enormity of some of those challenges, where is the best way for the, for the UK to deploy its resources to be able to make a difference on some of those things? Because they're, they're bigger than what any one country can, can take on. Yeah, I mean, I, I start off, I went to Erbil recently and I was able to meet with um, female MPs who came from different ethnic groups. And um, they were all MPs and they had had very difficult experiences prior to being elected. And my role was to be part of the round table to talk about peace and how important it is that everyone is being listened to. Now, aid could be used to help support groups where people want to rebuild their democracy. They want to be listened whilst it's being rebuilt, but they also want the support from maybe more developed democracies that can allow them to know that you may fall off at times, you may have disagreements at times, but fundamentally what you're trying to do is the right thing. Because if you haven't got a flourishing democracy, then, you know, well, I could speak about what's happening now in the UK, but I won't go into that. Um, but if you haven't got a flourishing democracy, that is part of where the issues around, you know, the inequality lie, because there is nobody speaking up who's been elected People are there for too long and there's no movement, natural movement. So that, that's an area which I'm very passionate about is around democracy. I would say that as an MP. But, 
going to Erbil and seeing a very young democracy coming together and knowing how important it is that women who have been on the forefront of the, of the conflict prior to being elected, how important it is that they were there and I was with them. But I think one of the main things around looking at where you deploy is listening to people who need your help. And we're not good at that. We normally make a decision based on something which we think is right in Whitehall. We're not on the ground listening to the people who need the help. So that's one of the first things that I would do, was actually be listening to the people on the ground to finding out what they feel they need. And some things, of course, you have to manage people's expectation. But a lot of the time, it will be humble and it will be realistic. So we would be looking at healthcare systems, we'd be looking at education. Like I said, I met young Myas. Myas is not a school. So she, Dominica needs a school. I've been to the front line, I've seen it first of, firsthand. There was no hospital in Barbuda. There are old people on the island, there are young people on the island, they need a hospital. So that's one of the first things. We need to look at the systems which we take for granted. And when we're rebuilding a state or a country, we need to look at the systems which make you strong and make you independent and help you to be less reliant on the outside world. So these are the areas, you know, health, education, roads that work, transport that works. These things are really important when you're rebuilding and a democracy where people have been elected fairly and the, and the election people feel was, it was done in a, in a transparent way. Mm. So I'm, I'm gonna bring in some outside voices as well into our conversation. We've got folks here in the audience and, and we've got folks online. Um, good news and bad news, we are trending on Twitter, but we're only number two. Um, so if you're not asking a question, please tweet one and then maybe that'll, uh, that'll get us over the top. Um, I, I'm actually going to start, though, in the spirit of trying to get our online uh, folks generated. I'm going to start with a, an online question because I think it's a great one and then I'll, I'll go to the audience. Um, uh, Susanna Pickering-Sakwa, I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, says, as an alumni of the University of East London, okay. <laughs> what will you do to work to increase public and especially young people's engagement with the development agenda? And let me, let me combine that with, with another question, which is, how do, you, how do you talk to your constituents about why some of them who may be suffering the ills of poverty, why it's so important for the UK uh, to be a leader in international development and, and to be spending at the, at the levels uh, that it does. So maybe kind of bring those two things together. Susan? It was uh, Susanna. Susanna. Well, yeah. Hi, Susanna. I went to East London University. Oh. So it, it's, a, <laughs> it's not a planted question. <laughs> um, now, for those of you that don't know much about East London University, I went there as a mature student. It is a hub for, um, I think, everybody and anybody that didn't go to university at a young age. So it's a lot of mature students that are there. Um, and I, I loved it there. I did international development there. Um, and most of my colleagues were from all over the world. So I'm sure Susan, Susanna is. Um, I, I don't think she's British. I'm not sure by her name. I can't tell yet. Um, so I do go back, go back to East London quite a lot. They invite me. They're very proud of me. And that's another thing about East London University, which maybe people that didn't go to university like that wouldn't appreciate. But we really encourage each other. It's, very, it's a place where everyone's very proud because of the journey it took us <laughs> to get there. So um, 
My message whenever I go to East London University is to tell them to enjoy the time whilst they're there and everything that you're taught there is the start, is a springboard to where you're going to end up. And I say that and they sort of look at me and think, well, you know, that's, you would say that, but that's the truth because it's so unique that you are around mature students, you're around people from all over the world. I was studying international development. I had people next to me that, were, that had come from, you know, war-torn countries. They were sitting next to me. They were taking over the classes at times and talking to the lecturers, telling the lecturers, no, this is what's actually happening. And at the time, I just thought this was normal, but it's not, it's not. You, you know, normally you're in a room with people that don't really know what's happening out on the ground, but they're lecturers. Um, so. That's what I take from that, and I and I would and I say that in my response because there are many leaders in East London University already without knowing that, and I always tell them that. So we end up having a conversation together. You know, I don't go and talk to them; we talk together, you know, which is fantastic. And Edmonton, for those of you that don't know much about Edmonton, again, it's very multicultural. Um, I think English people are the minority. Um, most people have come from all over. The world. I have a huge Kurdish um, constituents, and um, they're having a lot of problems back home in Turkey. Many of them can vote in the election. Um, a majority of them vote for HDP, and a lot of their MPs are now incarcerated. So it's quite a political constituency, and because of that, I'm very close to to the Kurdish um, fight. But I'm also very much involved with all the other groups and which is fantastic which is good for me because I'm always being fed and I'm always being always learning but it's a live issue in the sense that it's a constituency which has people in it that are living and breathing you know conflict at times but at the same time they're in a place which is safe and they're comfortable and they benefit from that so me being um, the Shadow Secretary of International Development <laughs> kind of fits in with my constituency mm. because it is an international constituency and we learn from each other and we celebrate each other. And, but at the same time, the domestic issues, they are at the brunt end of that as well. I have many constituents who, who are living off very little amount of money a day. They are reliant on um, the public sector a lot. And as we know, the public sector is under a lot of um, strain. My local hospital can have up to 500 people attending the A&E in any one day. Many people are reliant on um, the private sector for housing. And unfortunately, most of those homes are not fit for anyone to live in. So, you know, my hometown where I represent is very complex, but it spurs me on to know that we have to make things better here as well as, you know, back home for many of them as well. Mm. Mm. All right, let's go uh, to the audience. Uh, I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind to say your name and identify where you come from and whether you have a question or a comment. Either way, just please keep it brief. Uh, so uh, we have uh, somebody on the side here. Uh, yeah, there you go. Thanks very much, Kate. Uh, Jane Backhurst from Christian Aid, and thanks for your work last year on Nigeria and on the Lake Chad Basin as well. Um, you mentioned this new International Development Experts Group, um, which is, I think, a fantastic idea before final decisions are taken around Labour's manifesto. But I think it would be really helpful as well to hear from you what you have in mind in relation to the World Humanitarian Summit outcomes, reshaping the humanitarian system, and just making those connections between the SDGs 
um, and the World Humanitarian Summit. And also thanks for your work on pushing this issue of climate change is here right now. Thanks. fantastic question that you're asking me. Um, I think we, we first, I just want to say thank you to everyone that signed up thus far. Um, there, is, there are 10 people, but I'm not going to name them. Are any of them in the room? Can they wave? The experts? Got, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. At the back as well. Anne at the back. Excellent. Cool. Anne Pettifor. So, as I said in my speech, you know, we need to look at how we are delivering you know, aid, and we need to look at, you know, the, the areas which are most neglected. And one of the main things for me is getting a task force, task force together to inform me on the areas which most need a lot of work. So as I said in my speech, you know, we spoke about, I spoke about tax avoidance. Now that's one of the biggest areas, even in the UK, that if we got that system correct, and we actually got people paying into it, that in itself is something which those people in the public who read stories, not too sure what's going on, is this right, is this wrong, all these scare stories, you know, that we were going through the last, la the end of last year. We need to start addressing those stories, but we also need to have stories which we can give to them. And that is why if we don't look at the global system as it works now, and we don't address it, I mean, I'm speaking to like-minded people, but we need to push it further than that. So we bring more people in, new people in, so they can inform all of us on where they think we should be investing looking at the NHS and how that works. We love it, we support it. We know it's underfunded. But we need to transfer that system and cost that system in developing countries. Education, going back, I always think of young Myers that I met, you know, the little 10-year-old girl. She's not at school. This is not acceptable. So we need to challenge all of those things. We need to make sure that we have something to offer, something we can sell on the doorstep, because, as I said, my constituency in Ed Edmonton, many of the people there are sending back home, sending money back home, whether it's to Turkey, whether it's to Nigeria, you know, Colombia, all over the world. And they, they signed up. And there's many constituencies which are like that. They've signed up to it, but we're not talking to them because we make it seem like it's something where we only respond to humanitarian crisis. And we must respond to humanitarian crisis. But that is also something we're too good at doing because it becomes the only story. And, but there are some stories, as you know, you know, we've worked together on the Lake Chad um, um, issue problem. Some of them are not being spoken enough about, and that is, you know, we, we feel the same way on that. So there's a lot of work to be done, and we need to shift the way that we respond, but at the same time, there are some things, until they are fixed, we will keep responding to them. You know? It's a difficult one, isn't it? <laughs> Great, thanks. I've got a question way in the back there. I'll stand up because you won't be able to see me otherwise. Um, I'm Molly Canary. I'm from the Legatum Institute. And thank you so much for, for coming out tonight. I'd, by the way, like to volunteer our, our forces for your new task force. I think it sounds tremendously exciting. I think you got it spot on that aid cannot be a substitute for well-functioning commerce in the developing world if we're actually going to get people out of poverty. And at the end of the day, that's why we're all here. And you also reference the fact that the terms of trade between the first world and the developing world are often quite exploitative. And I was wondering um, if you had any specific policy proposals around that laid out thus far, or is that still sort of an, an embryonic phase for you? Thank, thank you, Molly. Thank you for offering your services. Anyone else, you know, you're very welcome <laughs> to join in. Um, the more, the merrier. Now, Molly, 
you know, obviously, I'm not going to announce anything now. I mean, I would say loads of stuff, but I'll get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but I just think your comments that you've made are the core issue, and we need to address them. We need to speak up about them a lot more. And we mustn't behave like there is a level playing field, because there isn't, and there hasn't been for many, many years. And the sooner we talk about that and articulate that, it will ensure that everything we do is based on the fact that there is one side which is you know, always benefiting at, at the expense of the other side. I think that's, that, for me, is one of the core conversations that I will continue having, and I know people like yourself will be as well. So thank you for that comment. It's fantastic. I wanted to come back to one thing that you, you mentioned in your speech, because I, I think it's been a, a subject of a lot of debate, and that's the, that as uh, in the last few years, as UK aid has grown, it is increasingly being spent not only by uh, the Department for International Development, but other departments as well. Um, and I think you raised some concern about that. And I wanted to ask you, uh, under a, a, a new government, what, how would you change? What are the, is it that you would, ha you would move the spending differently, you would establish different criteria? Uh, what are the, some of the things that you would do differently that you think uh, address some of the concerns you raised in your speech? Well, I think, you know, there's quite a few people that are concerned about the way that, you know, the money, get, the aid money gets spent by other departments. But I think for myself and for, for a Labour in government, we would have a cross-government coherent policy, which does include, you know, different departments in the way that the aid money is spent. But that's in conjunction with them spending their own money. And I think that's where we're not good at. We, we, we leave the door open for anyone to just take what they want. We need to have a conversation on how we respond to a situation, which may mean that, you know, defence or the Foreign Office are part of that response, but then they should use their own budget and respond to the same situation and I think that's where we've not been good but some policies I believe would be cross you know cross government and the sooner we get good at that I know you know Gordon Brown was good at that he used to have the treasury team working with him you know and in not with him sorry the treasury team would be in DFID as well as you know in different departments but working with them not dictating and I think that's what I would encourage because there's lots of um, situations and lots of lessons from the past that I would definitely sign up to and not say they didn't work. But it's about having a cross-governmental coherent policy which shows everybody this is your responsibility and you take it from your budget. And if you haven't got that money, then you don't take it from another budget. Because that's, for me, what's wrong, personally. And that DFID has, has an exemplary, you know, um, background on knowing how to spend money and, are, and know how to be transparent. So maybe they need to teach other departments on how to do the same. Mm. Why not? Great. Well, let's go back to the audience for a couple more. This, maybe we'll take this gentleman, the, the two gentlemen with their hands up now. We can take them together. Thank you. Um, William Brown, I'm from the Open University. And currently doing some research into Labour's policy during the years of opposition on international development. But clearly one of the big challenges um, currently facing development policy is Brexit and the impact that's going to have. So I was interested to hear what thinking is going on within Labour about how to respond to the challenges Brexit poses for international development policy, um, both in terms of aid as well as trade relations. Uh -huh. 
longest event I've ever been in without the mention of the B word in London here. <laughs> Apologies. Uh, <laughs> thank you. It's an excellent question, and this gentleman here. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Gates. I'm uh, Rob Yates. I'm a political uh, health economist. Um, of course, it's not that long ago that, that Britain was a post-conflict state, war-torn and dependent on aid. I mean, it was dependent on US aid at the end of the Second World War. And, and the incoming Labour government uh, to rebuild Britain had a big focus on building a welfare state, providing everyone with universal free health and education services. How much do you see this as something that a, a new Labour government would do to encourage countries like uh, sort of India and Pakistan and Nigeria, which um, you know have got huge inequalities and really haven't got a functioning welfare state at all? Do you see this as very much part of your your policy uh, to these countries? Well, two good questions. Good questions. Um, so I'll Brexit. <laughs> where's where's I oh, there? Yeah, I was wondering where you were. Well, how can we have a meeting and not talk about Brexit? Now, in in um, in all seriousness, for for me, my concern is that if there's going to be any trade deals with developing countries, who is going to be exploited? And we know who's going to be exploited. It's going to be the ones who don't have a voice. It's going to be those that haven't got a currency that's strong enough. It's going to be the countries where they don't have infrastructures which they own, whether it's the ports, the airports, because somebody that's come in to build the road or build the airport has taken control of you know, what comes in and out. So because of that unfair you know, playing field, my concern is that the countries which are developing, and I don't even like using that word, but we'll use it for the, for the sake of today, they will be the ones that are most exploited. So any deal that's taking place, it's got to be that they're treated fairly. And when you're relying on governments which are not functioning properly, as, as Rob you know, eloquently said, you've got countries where there is no functioning you know, health, health service, there's no functioning education service. So if these things are not functioning and there are prime ministers or presidents in charge, their people are going to be the ones who pay the price and when you have so many young people in Africa, as an example, that don't have a job, they will be the first ones pushed to the front line. So I'm deeply concerned about how Brexit is going to affect the Commonwealth. Even though the Commonwealth leaders are scrambling to get to the front of the queue to have conversations with the UK. So I keep my eye on that. I work very closely with Barry Gardner. Barry's got a fantastic team. And, you know, we're trying our best to make sure, in opposition, at least, we can have those conversations. But as a Labour government, I can assure you, people will come first and they will not be getting exploited if there's any deals to be put on the table. So that's, that's what I would say, and that's what Kate would be doing. <laughs> um, and Rob, as I slightly answered um, your question, but I think we've got a great opportunity, you know, to, to rebuild those functioning you know services which keep us well keep us educated and I think we have an opportunity to grow and to allow those countries which are reliant on aid to have strong systems and strong structures around them so as they're young are coming through they're able to go to school go to university and stay at home I mean my family are Nigerian and most of my cousins will leave by the age of 15 16 to come to the UK or to America to do their exams and then they stay away until they're finished doing their masters and then they may go back that's the common story because there is not an education system that is fit for purpose if you are coming from a certain background i should say not everyone can afford to leave 
Um, we're, we're almost out of time. Let me ask you something that you, I think, just talked about but to broaden a little bit about the, the UK role in, in the world more broadly. Um, I think for many people, uh, this is one of the most uncertain times that the world has seen since World War II and the creation of many of the institutions that have driven, including uh, DFID and the Departments for International Development in their various forms that you talked about. Um, and the, the balancing of thinking about the UK role in the world and what it means to reignite or renew uh, approaches towards multilateralism and international cooperation. Just talk a little bit about partnership and how, how does the UK both lead but also bring along uh, the community that's going to be necessary to tackle some of these massive challenges that you've outlined? I think there's one good thing that I always find when I travel is that most countries really respect the UK, they really respect British systems, they actually think they work, whether that's good or bad, whether that's right, it, we, we separate, but we have a position in the world where people respect us, and that is of course has been exploited, people have travelled and exploited other countries, but the essence of that is that we can lead because of that. How we lead, we have an opportunity now to lead in a way which shows that we listen to others, that we, we always respect other people's cultures, other people's religions. We bring that into our own home to understand what that means for those people. We don't victimise people, we don't isolate people, we don't allow media to tell the people at home that this is what a Muslim man looks like or this is what you know, a bad person looks like or a good person. You know, we need to move away from that. And because we haven't done that as a leading nation, we've allowed our nation to, you know, be in the position that we're in now, where you know, we're leaving the EU, which were our friends and our neighbours. Regardless of whether you, uh, you want to leave or not, I'm not going to get into that debate. The bottom line is, is that we've built friendships with these people and now we're walking away from that. How will that look to these same countries which are reliant on aid from us or reliant on us to lead? We walk away from our friends, we walk away from people. And sometimes you don't get on, but you've got to be able to communicate and understand what it is that you don't like about the system to make it change for it to work. We have an opportunity as a Labour government, or DFID has an opportunity, because we're respected as leaders, because we're respected, because we support a lot of people as well, that we now, not, now need to lead and allow others to lead us so we can understand what it means for them to live off $10 a day or whatever it is, that these markers and these targets that we've put down for others and expected others to be able to deliver. We also need to look at different countries and how they're being forced to survive only producing maybe one product. And then when they try and sell that product in the open market, their currency means nothing. So they're battling against a system which is always making them lose. We need to see what it's like for us to live in a way that we, take, we don't ever have to. As I said, I just came back from Dominica and I met young Myas and her dad. She's not at school, they haven't got any money. I went there for one, not even one day, we were there for a couple of hours and I experienced that. It's horrendous. But then I'm gonna say in the UK and say, oh, she can you know, live off you know, beans and rice for three months and sardines. <coughs> I don't have to live like that, so why would I expect someone else to live like that? So it's like leadership, cooperation, communication, respect. We have that opportunity, and I think that DFID as a department 
is crucial and is as a conduit to bring other departments with us while we look at the world through our eyes because we have that unique responsibility and I think it's I'm excited by that I think it's a good thing so um, last question to leave us on a final excited and, and happy note you know you've been doing some traveling in this role uh, give us a, a, a story of hope give us your version of where you think things are going right um, that give us some guide for how how, how things are going to get better well I briefly spoke about going to Erbil and I've never been to I didn't know what to expect I'm going to be honest so I was a bit scared because I'd read stuff but when I went there, there was like wall-to-wall -wall hotels. It was quite liberal. Everybody was having great conversations. I met all these female MPs who were really strong. I mean, I thought I was a force of nature. They just, they were like having good conversations. I was just sitting back. And I just thought, gosh, they've been through so much. And look at this. This is fantastic. So that was one of my great, great, great experiences of going to a country that I knew very little about um, and seeing hope around the table and knowing that they are going to make sure things get better for the next generation. I've also been able to see improvements where, you know, somebody has very little and they've been given an opportunity to farm. They're farming with their neighbours and en masse they sell their yam and everyone eats. So it's like a cooperative you know, I'm a cooperative MP as well. <laughs> Not conservative. Cooperative. <laughs> yeah, so I've seen some good stuff. <laughs> um, well, I, I can't thank you enough for coming. I think that this has been a tremendous evening to get to hear from you, to get to hear some of these new bold vision of labor being laid out. Uh, maybe we'll look back in a couple of years, this will have been a historic speech. I know a number of the people in the audience are gonna hold you to your pledges on civil society uh, in particular. Um, I hope that includes uh, think tanks as well. Um, uh, and uh, the last thing that I would say is uh, not only to join me um, in thanking Kate for being here tonight and sharing so much, um, but then to come and join us outside for a reception and uh, to, to toast to the resilience of the women of Erbil, I think is a great, uh, a great thing. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>